Believe it or not, we're going to uh, get through the whole chapter here together. And it's really an amazing story that is set before us. So let's read through it, paying attention. We're going to read, you know, 24 verses right now. Let's stay focused and hang in there. This is an incredible story, and there's much for us to learn. So let's start reading in Joshua, 1, or Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about, when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. And I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But really, she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid there in order on the roof. So the men pursued, on the road, or pursued them on the road to the Jordan, uh, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gates. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out from Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us a land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. And the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, the blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. 
And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible historical account that is in front of us. And Lord, there's much to be gleaned, much to be applied to our lives. And we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear now and eyes to see, that you would remove from us dullness of heart and deafness of ears and blindness of eyes, that those would be far from us, that we would be alive to hear from you, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and instruct us. Jesus, we are your bride, and we long for your coming. And we want to be near to you as we wait for you. So do a wonderful work in our hearts today. Encourage us with the incredible love of the Father and the grace of our Lord. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So the children of Israel are camped out on the east side of the Jordan River at a place called Shittim. And they go in to spy out the land. Just two of them are sent in by Joshua. And I brought a map to give you a little visual of what's going on here. Uh, the little dot, this is basically Israel here, a portion thereof. The little blue dot up top is the Sea of Galilee. The black line coming down out of it is the Jordan River. The big blue dot in the middle is the Dead Sea. To the right of that, you see marked a place called Shittim on the east side of the Jordan River. And then you see on the left side of the Jordan River, the west side, Jericho which is in our story here. And so the two spies are sent from Shittim, where the children of Israel are camped out with Joshua, to Jericho, a distance of about 12 or 13 miles. And when they get it there to spy out the land, they employ some pretty wise strategy. They go to a prostitute's house. Now, there's no hint whatsoever in the Bible of any immorality or any ill motives on their part. They were spies spying out the enemy's territory, and it seemed logical to them that a lot of traffic would come and go from a prostitute's house and they wouldn't be really seeming suspicious if they went in there. A reasonable strategy. But what they probably didn't expect is that the prostitute knew who they were, that they were children of Israel, and more importantly, knew who their God was and what their God had done. And so she says, we have heard about you guys and terror has fallen on all of us in Jericho. When we heard about how God delivered you guys from Egypt and the victory that he's given you, our hearts melted and there's no courage left in us. And I know that your God is the one true God of heaven and earth. And so she makes this amazing pronouncement of faith, having heard about who God was and what God had done. Now being before two of God's men, she makes this amazing pronouncement of faith, and then she makes a very brave decision, which was to protect them. The king came looking for him. Now a king wouldn't hesitate to kill a prostitute, much less those men. And it was very brave of her, regardless of the tactics, and we'll address that later, it was very brave of her to choose to protect this man, these men, excuse me, which was again a picture of the great faith that she was exercising at this moment. And so she puts the men up on the roof and she tells the king, duh, I don't know, they laughed and, and they go and pursue and then she goes to send them away but she says, listen, before you go, I want to wheel and deal with you a little bit here. I protected you guys. I want protection for my family. I know you guys are going to come and utterly destroy Jericho and its inhabitants. I want my family to be saved. I want them to be safe. And they say, okay, we will do that for you. But what you got to do is hang this cord made of scarlet thread, red thread, a scarlet thread out the window. And when we see that red thread, we will consider you to be under protection 
of us and the Most High God, and no harm will come to you because you are under that scarlet thread. And then they go and they hide out in the wilderness for three days while the search parties exhaust themselves. And then they go back to Josh and they say, hey, Josh, this is great. Listen, surely the Lord is going to give us all the land and the people are freaked out. They're terrified of us. 40 years earlier, you know, everybody was afraid of the inhabitants of the land. But now they've heard about our God and they're afraid of us. And there is this momentum that has been building in Joshua chapter 1 of taking the land, taking the land, taking the land. And we studied it for a few weeks. And it's a momentous period of history. And there's tremendous momentum to get into the land. Joshua, Moses is dead. Therefore now arise and go and take this land. Everywhere that your foot treads, I have given it to you to possess. Only be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Obey every word that Moses wrote down, obey every bit of my law and you'll be okay. You'll have success and you will prosper. Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You're going to take the land. Behold, I have given it to you. Joshua goes, yes, okay. People get ready in Joshua 1. He says, get the provisions ready. In three days, we're going in. Prepare yourselves. And then he says to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of, of Manasseh, he says, you guys, get your battle clothes on. Get your battle axes sharpened. We're going in. You're going in with us. You promised that you would, even though you settled on the east side. We're going to take this land. And there is this incredible momentum to go into the promised land and lay hold of it and experience this warfare. But when we get to chapter 2, it's as if God just goes, and just puts the brakes on the story and just stops all the momentum that was built in chapter 1 of going into the land and unfolds before us this incredible story of love and grace. We see here God himself pursuing the salvation of a prostitute the least likely, the one who is outcast and downtrodden and lowly esteemed. We see here a wonderful pursuit of her by the Lord. And, and, and when, when the book of Joshua comes to the screeching halt in chapter two, what it does is it reveals to us the priorities of God. The priorities of God. Because listen, the rest of Joshua is gonna be a bloody mess. I mean, it is a bloody mess. If it was a movie, it'd be rated NC-17 for violence. They are going in there, and they are going to be instruments, Israel is, of God's judgment. Now, the inhabitants of the land, they've rejected the one true living God. They've engaged in uh, uh, worship of false gods, sacrificing of their children, and gross sexual immorality. And God has given them room to repent, and will give them still yet room to repent in the coming chapters. But they are going to be judged by God at the hands of Israel, and it is a bloody mess. But it's, it, it's as if God gives us a little reprieve and he stops us before we go into the battle and he says, now wait, I want to remind the world of my priorities. I want to remind the world of my character. Yes, I'm a just God and I'm a God who judges, but I am also long-suffering and merciful and compassionate and loving and gracious and I'm going to stop the momentum of the world to go save this one prostitute who believes in me. That's what's happening in Joshua chapter 2. We see the priority of God made manifest. His love, his grace, a person who believed in him. Listen, this is a profound story. 
In the book of Joshua thus far, Moses has been given half a verse of attention. Joshua was given nine verses. This prostitute is given 24 verses. She's the second character that we meet in the book of Joshua, and she's the first story that really unfolds before us, and that is by the design of God. It is a story of grace and God's gracious pursuit of one sinner. When you think about Rahab, she didn't have anything going for her according to the cultural context. She had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman and not a man. Now, women have come a long way, and that reflects the heart of God, and that's good. I'm stoked about that. Don't get me wrong. But in that day, women were not highly esteemed, as we highly esteem you now. But in that day, they were not highly esteemed. They were not considered to be as valuable as they are now, generally speaking, in that culture. So she had one strike against her as far as why would anybody pursue her for salvation, for anything good. She was a woman, not a man. The second strike was she was an Amorite, not an Israelite. She was outside of the covenants and the promises and the worship of God and the people of God. Why would the people of God and why would the God of Israel stop time in history to pursue this Amorite who previously was a worshiper of false gods engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality? Two strikes against her. And the third strike against her was she was a prostitute. She was not pious. She was a prostitute. There's no way around it. Some people try to water it down and say, well, the Hebrew word here for prostitute can also be used to describe an innkeeper, and that's true of the Hebrew word. But in the New Testament, it says that she was a harlot, and there's a Greek word there used that's only used of a harlot. There's no way to soft pedal it. It doesn't say that she used to be a prostitute or anything. It says she was. So she had everything working against her as far as why would anybody give her any attention, much less seek to save her and her family. She's just a woman. She's not a man. She's an Amorite. She's not an Israelite. She's a prostitute. She's not pious. Why would anybody care about her? And in that culture, nobody did. And nobody would. She wouldn't be considered worth the time of day. But in the heart and mind of God, she was precious. In the heart and mind of God, this woman, this Amorite, this prostitute, was precious, and the Lord stops the momentum of Israel to go pursue this one woman. It's a beautiful story of grace. We have a similar one in the New Testament with Jesus and his pursuit of the woman at the well. She had three strikes against her as well. She was a woman and not a man, same cultural context. She was a Samaritan and not an Israelite. Samaritans were Jews who, when the Assyrians invaded Israel in 722 BC, chose to intermingle and intermarry, and so they diluted the bloodline. They were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were hated, listen, intensely hated by the Jews. So she's a woman, not a man. She's a Samaritan, not an Israelite, and she was sexually immoral and adulterous. Jesus said to her in John 4, 18, you've had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. Same thing. But what we see is that Jesus was very purposeful in his pursuit of this woman. You see, Jesus went into Samaria just to meet her. It says in John chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Jesus left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. New King James says, he must needs, weird language, we don't really use it, I must needs food, maybe in that instance, but generally we don't say must needs, 
We say it like the New American Standard says it. He had to go to Samaria. But I like the potency of must needs. You've got to understand the context. Jews did not go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. They thought they were dirty. They wanted nothing to do with them. They never went through Samaria. And when a Jew was going to travel from Judea, which is down south near the area of Jerusalem, up to the Galilee, they would take a circuitous route to go around Samaria. Go to the map, please, if you would. Here's the map again. Jesus, as he's going from Judea, would have been in the region just south of, of uh, just in the region of Jericho there. And Samaria would have been in between him and the Galilee where he was going. What every Jew would do at that time is go ahead and cross over to the east side of the Jordan River, then travel north, and then they would come back over to the west side and continue on into the Galilee. They would go out of their time or out of their way, and they would expend time and money and resources just to avoid the Samaritans. Jews never went there. But the Bible says about Jesus, he must needs go through Samaria. That is because God does not have the same priorities as you and I. His priorities are love and grace and mercy and salvation. And so he went and did what no other Jew would ever do to find this woman at the well. And she was an outcast, she was disenfranchised, she was broken down and brokenhearted in every way. And the Lord broke every cultural and sociopolitical barrier to go and meet this woman at the well. And he revealed himself to her in a way that he hadn't revealed himself to anybody else in the Gospels yet. He said straight up, I'm the Messiah. And woman, you are looking for meaning and nourishment and fulfillment and you're not getting it in all the men that you've been with. Come and drink of living waters that I will give to you and you will never thirst again. He revealed himself. Nobody else would care about her. A woman, not a man. A Samaritan, not an Israelite. She was sexually immoral, not pious. But Jesus goes after that sort of person. And that is what God is doing in chapter 2 of Joshua. He's going after Rahab. Listen, it is the sinner that needs saving it is the sick that needs a physician. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost and broken and downtrodden, disenfranchised and disassociated in every way. And so we see in Joshua chapter 2 this amazing pursuit of this one woman. Jesus spoke about it in Luke 15 where he said, anybody in their right mind leaves the 99 sheep that are secure and goes after the one. And having found the one, he places it on his shoulders and he comes home to his friends. He says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep that it was lost. And he says in Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that is the real reason why the spies go into Jericho, in my opinion. They didn't really have to spy out the land. God already told Joshua, I'm giving it to you. Joshua himself, 40 years earlier, had been in the land and had seen it for himself. And did you notice he didn't come back with any great information? It was no huge uh, success of reconnaissance. You know, they came back and said, yeah, the land is ours and the people are afraid. I mean, they didn't spy out beans. They just went to this chick's house. The real purpose that all the momentum was stopped and that these men were sent in was because there was one woman who you know and I know was brokenhearted in every way, but had heard about God and knew that he was the true God. And God said, I'm stopping the world to go after this one. Hey, that's what God did for you. 
That's what God did for me. Amen. That's who our God is. When Jesus would be walking through the area in Israel, a blind man would cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus would stop and have mercy on the man. Our God is merciful and compassionate. And his priority is grace and love. Yes, he's just and he will extend judgment. But he always extends grace and mercy and love and room for repentance first. Listen, I hope you have not taken lightly the grace of God. I hope that you understand, as I understand, that we are harlots. We have been prostitutes to sin. We've been prostitutes to false God, and we have prostituted ourselves. And the Lord God has pursued after every single one of you. Some of you, he's captured your heart. Some of you, you haven't let him yet, and today's your day. The Lord is coming, and he's coming for you. He will stop the world to get you. He loves you so much. And that's the story that is unfolding before us, and it reveals the priority of God, loving and saving people. Now, the second thing that we see in the story is the possibilities with God. The priority of God is revealed, but now the possibility with God. God used Rahab, this lying prostitute. God used her life in an almost unfathomable way. We understand the fruit of her life is very profound. Number one, she's one of only two women mentioned in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, where we have the greatest stories of faith recounted to us, and that's to encourage us. We studied it as a church last summer at our Wednesday night services. She's one of only two women in the hall of faith. It says about her in Hebrews eleven thirty one, 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. That is profound. The other woman who's in the hall of faith, there's a bunch of men there, but the other woman who's there was Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Now in the biblical mindset and especially in the Jewish mind, Sarah looms huge. Sarah, yes, it makes sense. We would expect to see Sarah in the hall of faith. I mean, it's this great story, you know what I mean? The, the matriarch of the Jewish people, yes, she would be there. Sarah. And then Rahab. Sarah. And Rahab. She's there. She had great faith in the Lord. She heard, she believed, she acted. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six says, she heard, she believed, she acted. She made the hall of faith. It's incredible. The second thing that's a great testimony to her life and the grace of God and the possibility with God is that she's one of only two women mentioned in the book of James to exemplify or illustrate true faith. In James chapter 2, James is arguing for this fact. He's basically arguing, if you've been saved, there will be evidence if you have saving faith, if you have really put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your only hope for forgiveness and salvation in eternity, if you have really truly been born again, there's going to be evidence, he says. He says, faith without evidence or works, he calls it, is dead. If you say you believe in God, big deal, he says in James chapter 2. The demons believe and they're terrified. I believe in Jesus, so what? The demons believe. The question is, do you have saving faith? Have you really put your trust in Jesus Christ and truly been born again because you know that you know that you're a sinner lost to hell? Unless you ask him to save you. 
and you fully believe that he died upon the cross that he might give you new life and eternal life and you've asked him for that and you've really been born again. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that if you have been born again, there is going to be evidence. This is a very important lesson for you and I. Because much of the church in America, in my opinion, has sort of soft-pedaled the idea of who a Christian is. They're willing to just say, oh, you believe in Jesus? You're a Christian. Oh, you go to church? You must be a Christian. Oh, you raised your hand one time? You must be a Christian. The Bible presents no such portrait of a Christian. Jesus said those who want to come after him must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. He said that in our churches, there would be people who believe themselves to be Christians and are not, and people who are deceiving others. There will be tares among the wheat, Jesus said. Jesus said in Luke 6 that in the last days, some people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It says in Luke chapter 3 that we are to bear fruit and keep him with repentance. And James chapter 2 says, if you have truly been born again, there's going to be evidence, there's going to be transformation. A metamorphosis will take place. If you have truly been saved and are a biblical Christian, your life is different. I'm not saying you're perfect. You might still be a mess. But there's change. There's tangible, measurable change in your life. If there isn't, I'm telling you, you had better really, really wonder if you're saved. If you say, I raised my hand one time, or I come to church every week, or this, that, or the other, but there's no transformation in your life, brother, you're not saved. You haven't been born again by the Spirit of God because you don't get born again by God's Holy Spirit and everything just stays the same. What would salvation be then? You get born again, you get changed, you get filled with power, you're made a brand new creation and God begins to work with you and your attitudes and your heart and your perspective and your habits and your life and your love and your peace, they change. Don't tell me that you're a Christian and your life has just stayed the same. That's cheesy, man. That is not truth. That is not real. I know that that has been taught in this country, but that is not truth. Jesus Christ changes lives. He changes lives. And uh, and so, in illustrating that point, James chose two people out of all of the Old Testament to exemplify real faith. He chose Abraham, makes perfect sense in our biblical minds. Makes for Abraham, duh, the father of the Jewish people. Duh, Abraham, of course, Abraham. Yes, use Abraham, James. And he chose Rahab. Abraham, I understand. Rahab, she had great faith. This lying prostitute had great faith in the Lord. She heard, she believed, and she acted. So it says of her in James 2, 25 and 26, and in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so this incredible testimony of her life, one of only two women in the hall of faith, one of only two people chosen by the Holy Spirit in the book of James to exemplify true and living faith, and then secondly, or thirdly, excuse me, She's one of only two non-Jews that appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is astounding. I mean, you've got to step back and think about it for a minute. She's a harlot. And she's in the genealogy of our Lord? 
She's written down in Scripture as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. There's something in us that repels against that, isn't there? There's something in us that goes, ah, ooh, a, a harlot, an ancestor of Jesus. But wait a minute, church. Who are we to call ourselves the bride of Christ? If we have that attitude, are we not all spiritual harlots who have played adultery against the Lord? Saved by grace, washed by the blood of the Lamb, brand new, forgiven. The bride of Christ. And so we read about her making the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez, and Zerah, and Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Amminadab, and to Amminadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born King David. And then it goes on to Jesus Christ. She is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If that is not a picture of grace, what is? She was a woman, not a man who cared. She was an Amorite, not an Israelite. She was a prostitute, not pious. And the Lord says, perfect. It's just the kind of person I just love to save. And the Lord says, you know what? Let's put her in the hall of faith. Let's put her in James too. No, you know what? Let's put her in the genealogy of Christ Jesus. An unbelievable picture of God's grace and the possibilities with God. The possibilities with God. All these women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ had issues. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and then Bathsheba in verse 6. Both Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Ruth was a foreigner. She's the other non-Jew. She was a Moabitess. And Bathsheba was one who committed adultery with David. All of these women had some serious issues. And yet they were brought into the promises of God and the kingdom of God. And Rahab becomes for us a picture of the Gentile or non-Jewish church who's called out of the world and into the covenant that God made with Israel, into the covenantal blessings, into the family and the kingdom of God and is fully and wholly accepted and adopted and redeemed so much so that she became part of the Jewish family there. She married that cat. And she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. That's amazing. The possibilities of our life with God and the fact that he takes broken, messed up people and does beautiful things with their lives. That's who our Lord is. That's exactly who he is. And there's a right response then. If you know that you're broken and beat up and messed up and you experience the grace of God, there's a right response for that. I want you to see it in Luke chapter 7. Please keep a finger here in Joshua 2 and go to Luke 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 36. Luke 7, 36, it says, <clears throat> Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
and behold, there was a woman in the city. Now, a woman in the city was a first century euphemism or idiom for prostitute. It was a socially acceptable and nice way of saying she was a prostitute, woman of the city, a euphemism or idiom. There was a woman of the city who was a sinner. That means that she was non-religious and immoral. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. This guy gets really busted. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And the Pharisee said, oh, uh, say it, teacher. Verse 41, Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I'm telling you, her sins, which are many, I know, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's exactly what's happening with Rahab. Her faith, having heard about God, believing in him and acting according to that, had saved her, had secured her salvation, even though everyone around her would be destroyed. And what there ought to be in the heart of the Christian is, is this response that we see in the woman here. I mean, this was, she, she broke every cultural barrier when she did this. There was no way that a prostitute would ever enter into the house of a Pharisee. I mean, there is no way. And when it be allowed, she would be too ashamed. There's a whole litany of social reasons why that wouldn't happen. She barges into the house of the Pharisee. And she comes to the feet of a man, Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi. A prostitute would never approach a Jewish rabbi. And she takes the most valuable thing she had as a hooker, her alabaster vial of perfume, and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus, and she begins to weep. And in that day, uh, prostitutes would wear their hair down and unveiled, and that's how everybody knew that she was a prostitute. And she would take that hair that was a picture of her shame and her promiscuity, and she would use it to worship the Lord. And she wept at his feet, and she adored him. And that is the right response. She did that because she knew because of the grace of God and by faith that she had been forgiven so much and her heart just overflowed with adoration and so it ought to be with you and I. Man, we are no different. If you think you're different, well, I'm not as bad as a prostitute. I mean, I never did that. You know what I mean? I did some stuff, but I, I, I'm not like that. My brother, my sister, you are 
grievously wrong. Even our righteous deeds are filthy rags according to God's standard. Each one of us is a harlot and a lying one at that. And we have been saved because of the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And the right response is pure, unadulterated, unashamed, unabashed adoration. Extravagant displays of adoration to Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, what you see so often is a pharisaical attitude. He denied Jesus water to wash his feet, which was just a bare minimum social custom of the day. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, which was a bare minimum social custom the way that he would have greeted any other rabbi. He didn't do it. Nor did he give him oil to anoint his head, which would have been a bare minimum social custom for his dinner guest. He didn't do any of those things. And he just sat there and figured, gosh, if he knew how dirty this woman was. Man, that's a horribly dangerous place to be because what I so see, see so often in the church is that we don't give the bare minimum expression of adoration to the Lord. There's no kissing of his feet, so to speak. There's no anointing with oil. There's no tears at his feet. There's no washing. There's no rejoicing in his presence like there is with this woman, as there ought to be. Because I think we just maybe don't know the extent to which we've been saved. I don't think we fully realize that from which we have been saved. In the one-year Bible we read in the book of Leviticus, that ought to give us a clue right now. The seriousness of sin that those poor Jews, when they sinned, it was so costly to them. They'd have to go and get that, un, that unblemished lamb and they'd have to go to the temple and take it before the priest and wait in line. And then they'd stand there and they'd place their hand on that sacrifice signifying that that, that sacrifice was taking their guilt and they themselves would have to slit the throat of that animal. And they would feel the blood and they would see the blood and they would suffer the financial loss. And the Jews knew, gosh, sin is so costly. And they would make that sacrifice and their sin was covered for a time. And then they would go back down the hill and they'd sin again. Ah! Oh, and they'd go and get another sacrifice and come back and have to wait in line and come before the priest and slaughter that animal again. And they understood the weight of sin is so heavy. That is why when John the Baptist said at the Jordan River that day concerning Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The heart of the astute Jew went, What? Takes away my sin. Because the animals didn't take away my sin. I, I, would, I would slaughter a lamb and I'd go and I'd sin. I'd have to come and do another one. And I'd bring a bull and I'd kill him and spill his blood and I'd go and sin again and I'd go and week in and month in and year in and year out killing these animals and so much blood and it was so costly and so time consuming. You're telling me that this guy's going to take away my sin? They understood what too often the church doesn't understand today. How wonderful the salvation of the Lord is. How amazing that we've been saved. It's because it's, it seems so easy for us. We've never spilt the blood. Jesus did all the work on the cross so that we can just receive the forgiveness. It wasn't easy for him. It wasn't easy to take three nails. It was a costly thing when his blood was drained on the ground in Jerusalem outside the walls that day. And yet we're so into cheap grace. Thank you, Lord, I've got my fire insurance. I'll just go live my life. No, you're not saved. 
you don't know Jesus Christ or the power of his blood. If you do, there's a change and transform life. And there ought to be a right response of adoration such as this woman. And if you find yourself with your hands in your pocket and a judgmental attitude towards the harlots who approach the Lord with joy in their hearts, brother, I love you. Repent. I love you. Repent. Going back to Joshua, all she had was simple faith, but it was wonderful faith. And I want you to notice that that faith came by hearing. Don't miss this point, church. Her faith came by hearing. She says in verse 9, I know the Lord has given you the land. She knew it. She says in verse 10, for we have heard what the Lord did. And again in verse 11, and we have heard what the Lord did. And then she makes that great profession of faith at the end of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The Lord is God. She heard, she believed, and so she acted according to what she knew. And that is amazing faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. She just had faith. Now Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That is why it is absolutely imperative for the Christian that he spend time every day in the word of God. Because it is there that our faith is increased and nurtured and blossoms and blooms. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. She heard and it birthed in her faith and she, active, she acted, which was evidence that it was real saving faith. And so it is in our lives. And so I encourage you, Christian, if you feel weak in your Christian walk, if you feel weary and like you're lacking faith, brothers and sisters, you got to get into the Word of God. And as you get in the Word of God, it will change your world. It will change your life as you commune with Jesus and Christ, Jesus Christ in these pages. Now listen, we are living in a day and age where that view that I just expressed is considered to be simplistic and archaic. I know this. There's a segment in the church that is saying, oh, Pastor Britt, you are so simple. You can't just tell people that if they read their Bibles, their lives will change. Hey, you know what? Call me an idiot. But my life changed when I got into the Word of God. Can anybody testify? Can I get a witness? And there will be a battle for this in the last days. People will want to make it the Word of God and. Well, the Word of God is neat, but you need this other book, or you need this program, or you need this psychological thing, you need this and that and the other. We need Jesus Christ in the Word of God. He is sufficient for all things. She heard, and it birthed in her faith, because faith comes by hearing Christians. Are you in the Word of God? It will bless your socks off. What I love about this woman is though she had great faith, she also had imperfect faith. Notice that she told the lie. She had faith, but she had a fib. Faith and a fib. Faith and a fib. She had faith, she told a fib. I love that. We can, it's kind of an ethical dilemma. You know what I mean? Should she have told the lie or was that wrong? I mean, w when you think about it, you know, you, you could reason that if she had not told the lie and said, oh yeah, those guys came, I didn't know where they were from and I don't know where they are now, you could argue, well, then, you know, if she hadn't told the lie, the king would have killed them and it would have been over right there. You can make that argument. Or you could argue, no, 
uh, she should have told the truth, you know what I mean, and God would have protected them because she was walking in the truth. And so it's this ethical dilemma, it's hard to know, it's like during the Holocaust, when people would hide Jews and they would lie to the governing authorities, you know what I mean? And yet the Bible says God hates a lying tongue and let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so was it good that she told the lie? Was it bad that she told the lie? Man, I don't know. I really don't care. She was a prostitute who had been saved for like two verses. <laughs> what do you expect? I mean, let's just assume that she blew it and she lied. What I love is that in the New Testament, it never mentions the fib. It only talks about her faith. I love that. It says she was a harlot, yes. It said that she had living and active faith, but it never mentions the fib. So the, the fib is not the point of the story. Don't say, oh, Rahab lied. Now I should lie. Don't be dumb. <laughs> Lay that aside. The point of the story is her faith and that the fib, good or bad, whatever, is under the blood. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. And, and aren't you glad that God deals with us in that way? He's so merciful with us because we're going to make mistakes. You know what I mean? And, and he reveals to us slowly in so many ways our sinfulness and he corrects us slowly so many times. And he's very graceful to do that. If the Lord in an instant showed us everything that we were doing that was wrong, everything in our heart and in our world that was wrong, we would die immediately. Who could bear the weight of that realization? And so the Lord is so kind. You know, he just very slowly just convicts us and moves us away from those things and into rightness, you know what I mean? The Lord is so kind to do that. John Newton, he's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. You know, he became a Christian and he stayed in the slave trading business. He was trading slaves for some time. And then God, in his grace, by grace, revealed to him, my son, John, that's not my will. That's not right. That's wrong. And at that time, John repented, and that's when he wrote Amazing Grace, that God would save a wretch like me. I was blind. I didn't know. I was like, Rahab, what did I know? But now I see Amazing Grace. And God deals with you the same way. And, and so we ought to deal with one another the same way. Because we're all just works in progress, you know what I mean? You ought to deal with me as your pastor that way. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I don't know everything. And guess what? God is going to let me make mistakes. God is not freaking out over our mistakes because he's sovereign. He's in control. He's bigger than our mistakes. But I, I'm just telling you, we ought to deal with each other this way because we're going to let each other down. I'm going to let you down sooner or later if I haven't already as your pastor. And so if you have me on some sort of pedestal, if your faith or your church affiliation is based on me, you should just leave today because it's just a matter of time until you do. If it's based on Jesus Christ and on something he's doing and who he is and what he's doing here, then that's cool. Stick around. We'll make some mistakes together. But we'll be like Rahab, the prostitute, man. It's under the blood. And the possibility that God takes broken, messed up things and puts them right into the genealogy and the family of Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. He's so good. He's so amazing in that way. And some of you, you feel like Rahab. You just feel like, man, I feel like an Amorite. I feel like a prostitute. I feel disconnected and disenfranchised. I hear what you're saying, Britt, but how can God use me? Hey, man, she was a prostitute. And everyone else in the Bible was messed up that God used. I mean, really? Well, what, what about Noah? Noah was a drunk. You read your Bible. Noah was a drunk. He had a little bit of a problem. Abraham was older than dirt. 
God used him. Isaac was a daydreamer like many of us. Jacob was an outright liar. Jacob was an outright liar. God changed his name to Israel. He was a liar and a deceiver, Jacob was. Leah, the Bible says, was ugly. God used her wonderfully. Encouragement for Pastor G. No, he's actually a very handsome man. Joseph, used greatly by God. Joseph had a real gnarly past of abuse, didn't he? Joseph was really abused in every sense of the word. Moses couldn't speak well, had a speech impediment, wasn't good with words. Gideon was a full-on cheeseball who was afraid when he shouldn't have been. Samson was a womanizer. Don't recommend it. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an adulterous affair and then murdered the woman's husband. There were consequences for that, to be sure. But God did not altogether discard him. Elijah was suicidal. He really was. Isaiah, God bless him, preached naked. <laughs> and God used him. I'm not going to do it, but God, Isaiah. <laughs> Jonah had a problem of fishing when he should have been preaching. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, became the pillar of the church. The disciples fell asleep while praying three times. Martha worried about everything and was full of drama. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman was divorced several times. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. These are the people throughout Scripture that God uses. Now, if you, if you identify with any of those character traits, <laughs> the possibilities with God, the priority of God, His love and His grace and your salvation, the possibilities with God of a redeemed life and restoration and wholeness and belonging. And the last thing I'll say is it's all according to the promise of God. The third and final point, very simply put, what she was to do was to hang this cord made of scarlet thread from the window. And when the Israelites saw that, they would know she's under the scarlet thread, she's covered. It's the same thing like the Passover some decades later, when, or excuse me, earlier when they came out of Egypt. And, and God had commanded them to slaughter the Passover lamb and put the blood on the top of the door and on the sides. It would, have, it would have made like a picture of a perfect cross. And it was a foreshadowing of the cross. They were under the blood and so they were safe. And, and the scarlet thread is that scarlet thread that runs all the way through the Bible. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And you guys are really um, uh, uh, connecting with that scarlet thread right now in the book of Leviticus in our one-year Bible reading. You're seeing it, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. There is that scarlet thread running through Scripture, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, by which we are saved and forgiven and washed and made whole. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood 
of Christ. Why the blood? Because the wages of sin or what sin earns us is death, the Bible says. What sin earns you is death. That's the debt of it. So what could possibly pay that debt? Nothing but a life. And Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, says that the life is in the blood. You drain your blood, no more life. The life is in the blood. That is why Jesus Christ gave his life, his blood, upon the cross to pay our debt of sin, which meant for us death. He paid for it with his blood so that we might have life and life eternal. And by his blood we're made whole, we're washed white as snow, cleansed from every impurity, all guilt, all shame, every debt. We are cleansed from those things. Some of you are here today and you know, I, Britt, I want that so bad. All you got to do is say, Jesus, save me. I'm messed up sinner. I'm blowing it. Save me. I confess that I'm a sinner. I realize that you're a savior. I believe by faith that what you did on the cross was for my forgiveness. Save me. You cry out on the Lord and he will save you. He will in no way turn away anyone that comes to him. Some of you, you've already done that, but you have not appropriated the fullness of the blood to your life. You're all caught up in, in, in guilt and condemnation and shame. And the blood washes us of those things. We're justified by his blood, declared righteous and whole and holy by his blood. And so maybe you just need to appropriate the blood today, so to speak. You just need to say once again, Lord, by your blood, I believe that I am forgiven and cleansed of that. I reject shame. I'm not going to walk in condemnation anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. Those things are of Satan. God wants you to know that you are accepted, redeemed, loved, forgiven, washed, renewed, and made whole by his blood. Lay hold of that today by faith as Rahab did. Amen? Thank you so much for these incredible truths, Lord. These things are wonderful for us to behold. These things are glorious. Lord, I just pray for anybody in here who has not been washed in your blood, so to speak, who has not received your sacrifice, that you draw them to yourself now, that you just meet them in this place and they cry out on you for salvation, Lord, and you'd save them. And thank you that Jesus, that night in Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, you said, as you lifted up that cup, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. Thank you that you forgive us, Jesus. Help us to believe every ounce of it that we are wholly and truly and utterly forgiven from beginning to end, past, present, and future. And help us to rejoice in that, to come before you with rejoicing and weeping, with tears and with perfume, with kisses and with service. We love you, Lord. How great a salvation we have. Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation.